Good morning, church. Let us pray together. Gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, it's with a great sense of anticipation and awe and reverence that we assemble to continue our worship by sitting at your feet, trusting that you would be our teacher this morning. Father, we pray that you would cleanse us of all unrighteousness and make us worthy vessels to receive that which you would have to give us from your word. And Father, we humbly pray that your Holy Spirit would fulfill his job description and guide us into all truth for your glory. May it be so that you'll be pleased to open our eyes that we might behold you more clearly for Christ's sake. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, the passage that was read for us. We're going to begin a four-week series entitled, A Detectable Disciple, A Christian in an Unchristian World. It's important that you understand how we come up with our insights when we're teaching a passage such as this. There'll be three things we'll be examining over the next four weeks. First of all, we'll look at the historical background of this passage. It's important that we understand what was going on culturally at the time of young Daniel's life so that we can make appropriate applications to our life and our culture today. Secondly, it will be important that we look at grammar, verb tenses, and definitions of words to help us understand the significance of why that plays into the historical background of our passage. And thirdly, we need to look at the context of the verses in its total package to see where these fit. This is what you would call biblical hermeneutics. That's the science of biblical interpretation. And I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open as you go through this because today we're going to go understand and look at the historical background, the unusual situation in which we find Daniel. But some of you may ask me, why, Bruce, did you pick Daniel chapter 1 to be a four-week series while you're with us? Well, the reason I've done that, friends, is because essentially we live in an age of compromise. Our culture now follows the path of least resistance, and expedience has now become the cardinal rule for our society. Worshiping the God of pragmatism has conditioned many within the church to operate with the humanistic philosophy that says this, if it works, it must be successful, therefore we're going to do it. That which is deemed practical or successful has been replaced, has replaced our convictions and our conscience. The cause of Christ in many situations has been replaced by the creativity of man. And compromise has become a way of life. Because we don't want to offend people when we proclaim biblical truth, nor do we want to be thought less of when we stand up against sin which profanes the name of God. In recent years, worship has really been designed to make sure that people get a blessing rather than give a blessing. Forgetting that worship is a verb, not a noun. Worship is not something you get. Worship is something that you do. Worship means to kiss toward. How many times have you heard somebody say, I'm not going back to that church because I didn't get a blessing? Amen, that's right. Well, you weren't supposed to get one. Right. You were supposed to come and give one. Because worship is a verb. It's something that you do. That means this, friends, that you and I have the individual personal responsibility to be responsible for our own quality of worship. Now, granted, our musicians and our pastors can aid that a great deal, but it is your and my responsibility to take charge of my own worship because I come to give. You don't come to church to get your batteries recharged. You come to say, thank you, Lord, that I survived the past six days. And maybe I can survive another week. And so you come to give. 
And unfortunately, the focal point of worship in many worship services, which is the proclamation of biblical truth from the Word of God, has been marginalized. I was in a church recently where the church bulletin said this, Worship will be conducted by the praise team, after which you'll have a sermon. Now basically it's saying this, the people who do the worship are the praise team members, and after that, the worship stops because you're not going to have to listen to a sermon, and that's not worship. You see, sermons have been marginalized because of our ability to compromise. We can't seem to understand what it means to be in the world but not of the world. You see, a ship is designed to be in the water, but you don't want any water in the ship. You and I have been designed to be in the world, but we don't want any of the world inside of us in the church. We have substituted ourselves as the ones who are to be pleased rather than God, and as a result, we've learned the art of compromise. Now, to those of us of the body of Christ, we are called by an uncompromising God who never sets apart biblical truth for expediency. We are to be, as 1 John 2.15 tells us, to be in the world but not love the world nor the things of the world. You see, it's in the midst of this compromising world we are called to be exactly the opposite. We're called to live a detectable life. Now, I'm not suggesting that that means you go off on some mountaintop and sing some and hum some mantra and be by yourself. No, that's not what I'm suggesting. But I am saying this, that our style of life in the midst of this world system, a system which we cannot escape nor should we try to, we are to be recognizably different and detectable. Oh, there's one, and there's another one. Did you know that over here's another one? And over there is another detectable disciple. You see, we are to be recognizably different. And when we master the art of compromise, that's not going to happen. Consider these words from the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, specifically verses 22 to 27. I'd encourage you to read this sometime, but I want you to realize specifically verse 23. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Holy through you before their eyes. God has called us to be the means by which he's going to demonstrate the fact that he is holy and prove the fact that he's Lord. And that cannot happen if we continue to compromise. You see, people may be attracted to a God of their human imagination, but they're never going to be attracted to the God of biblical revelation if we continue to compromise in the church. So I want us to examine the life of a young teenage lad named Daniel who was thrown into some very unusual circumstances to see why he did not compromise. There's much we can learn from Daniel. And so I want you to follow along as we go through these first seven verses because I want to give you the unusual circumstances in which Daniel was thrust as a young lad. And maybe we can learn from something from this young teenage boy about how to be a detectable disciple, how to be a Christian in an unchristian world. So when you read Daniel chapter 1, we first notice that he was thrown into these very unusual circumstances. You can read about those in verses 1 through 4. Now these events historically 
were the first of the three movements of the Babylonian captivity. The northern kingdom had long gone into captivity, and now it was Judah's turn. The first migration occurred in 606 B.C., the second in 598 B.C., and the third in 586 B.C. And during the siege of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar's father died, necessitating his going back to the city of Babylon. In order to facilitate the takeover of Judah and to rule it administratively, he put Jehoiakim on the throne as a political figurehead. But before he left, before he went back to Babylon, he stole all the valuable things from the temple in Jerusalem. Now in that culture in that day, if one could steal the valuables from another god's temple, it validated and demonstrated the fact that you, the leader, were more powerful than that false god. So if one could steal from another's god, it validated his power. That's why he took the valuables from the temple in Jerusalem. Because the people of Judah had not learned from previous warnings by the prophets or understood by the invasion of the Assyrians, God did not defend the temple. Obviously, he sovereignly ordained the ransacking of the temple as part of the process of teaching the people of Judah the lessons they had not learned previously by the warnings of the prophets. So to ensure security of this transition of taking over Judah and to secure it in the region, and also to plan for future governance, Nebuchadnezzar took some hostages to Babylon until he could return to Jerusalem and finish his conquest of Judah. Now these hostages, we're told, were from the royal family and princely nobility of Judah. They were some of the finest young men that Judah had to offer. Historians indicate that the actual number was somewhere between 50 to 75, but we really only read about four because of the roles they played in Babylonian government in later years. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to train them in the, the administrative techniques of the Babylonian court so that they could administer Jewish affairs so that he could make sure that the Jewish nation was under subvile, servile administration to his leadership in Babylon. And such were the unusual circumstances in which we find this young lad named Daniel. Now look at verse 4. Once you know the word youths, we see in verse 4 the word youths. Now that describes a person who was 13 to 17 years old. Let's say that Daniel was 15. We're going to read about a young 15-year-old lad who was thrown into some very unusual circumstances. Here are the circumstances in which he was removed. He was removed from his family. He was removed from his friends. He was removed from his country. But he was not removed from his God. Now, in my opinion, the perfect group to hear this message in the next four weeks would be your teenagers. Because we're talking about a 15-year-old who's thrown into some very unusual circumstances, and we need to help them understand how did he respond to unusual circumstances in which you're going to be subjected to in our culture in America today. Sometimes I think we're more concerned about entertaining our teenagers in the church than we are about training them about the church. And the ideal people to hear this message for the next four weeks would be our teenagers. Because we're going to talk about a 15-year-old and see how he responded to the things of these very unusual circumstances. We're told in the scripture that they had no physical blemishes or handicaps. They had good-looking features. They were highly intelligent. 
with the ability to apply truth by correlating information and being able to make wise and discerning decisions. We're told in verse 4 that they also possessed social graces. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? How when the world looks at someone's qualifications, what do we look at? Their physical, their mental, and their social abilities. Things haven't changed very much from Nebuchadnezzar's day, have they? Very, very similar. We look at the physical, the mental, and the social. But as you read this passage, there's much more that Daniel was subjected to just than being removed from his country, from his friends, but not from his God. Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to brainwash these youths through a threefold strategy to remove their godly value system and replace it with a heathenistic one. They were to be re-educated through human wisdom. They were to be redefined by giving them heathen food. And they were to be reoriented in their lifestyle by providing them with new names. They were going to be re-educated, reoriented, and redefined. Now that's what this young teenager was subjected to in these very unusual circumstances, which we need to find out. How do you become a detectable disciple in that particular environment? So let's look at this threefold brainwashing strategy of Nebuchadnezzar. First of all, look at verse 4. Re-education. Heathen wisdom was taught Daniel and his friends. Now this educational system included language and literature of the Chaldeans, consisting of the old language of Babylonia, two dialects of Samaria, and the Hittite language. They essentially were to become what we would call polyglots, linguistic experts. They also learned astronomy, astrology, mathematics, a sexagesal numerical system, natural history, architecture, engineering, mythology, agriculture, magic, music, glassmaking, and an entire pantheon of gods. Now, you say, why are you going into all that historical background? Well, folks, the reason is because I want you to understand this. The things haven't changed that much in our culture today. What Nebuchadnezzar was doing to those teenage boys is very similar to what our current educational system is doing to our teenagers. And that is replacing a biblical heritage with godless, humanistic, atheistic, socialistic information. You see, Daniel's unusual circumstances are really not unusual at all because that's exactly what's going on in our country. We are in an environment of an educational system that is removing a biblical heritage and replacing it with a godless, humanistic, atheistic, socialistic heritage that is to remove our godly understanding of who we are in Christ Jesus as a country. You see, things haven't changed at all since Nebuchadnezzar's days. And that's why it's so important that we understand. How did Daniel respond to that? Because the unusual situations which Daniel was thrust into are the identical ones that you and my teenagers are being thrust into, and so are we. There's much we can learn from Daniel. So first of all, he was to be re-educated. And heathen wisdom was to be taught him. Second stage of this three-brainwashing strategy was this. He was to be reoriented in verse 5 by giving him heathen food. His lifestyle was to be reoriented. Now, not only were they subjected to an entire re-education system, but they were also to be subjected to a reorientation of their lifestyle by having to eat the king's choice food and drink his very best wine. You see, by doing this, Nebuchadnezzar knew this. They would develop a sense of obligation 
and he would expand their perspective of life that was different from their heritage. They were to be seduced by lifting up and elevating their standard of living where Nebuchadnezzar wanted it to be so that they would never, ever want to go back to Jerusalem. I mean, look at it logically. If I got the king's best food, I got the king's best wine, the elevation of my standard of living is elevated very highly, why would I want to go back to Jerusalem when I've seen Babylon? In our culture, we would say this. How can you keep them on the farm when they've seen Paris? You see, things really haven't changed that very much. So they were subjected not only to a re-educational system, but they were also subjected to heathen food to reorient them in the quality of their lifestyle. But there was one more, and that was to redefine them by giving them heathen names. Notice verse 7. Reorientation, re-education, and now redefining who they were. Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to re-educate by teaching them heathen wisdom, reorient their style of life by giving them heathen food, but there was one more element that he needed to completely brainwash these teenage boys, and that was to redefine who they were. He's going to redefine who they were. Now, this was going to be accomplished by giving them new names, and once complete, these members of this Judean royalty could be used to help assure Judea's continued submission to Babylon and to prepare these young men for administrative positions in the government of Babylon to rule Judea. Now, of the many young men that we read about, only four are mentioned. Now, it's interesting to notice their names. You see, the last phase of this brainwashing was to redefine them. And the way they were going to do that is we're going to change their biblical heritage name and give them another name. Now, because all four of these young men names honored Yahweh, the God of Israel, their names were going to be changed. The little postscript L means God, and Yah, I-A-H, or Y-A-H, is an abbreviation of Yahweh. So you notice all four of their names, suggesting that the young men's parents were God-fearing people who gave them names that identified some reference to God of Israel. A lot of times people ask me, Bruce, who are some of your favorite Bible characters? Well, I've got several, but I tell you, two of my most favorite. Daniel's parents. I don't know their names. You read nothing about them. I know nothing about them. I'm anxious to meet them because I see an awful lot of Daniel's parents in Daniel. Because it's rather obvious that this young teenage boy was taught well to know his obligations of obedience to the God of Israel by the way that he responded to these unusual circumstances of being removed from his country, being removed from his friends, being removed from his heritage, his family. But he was never removed from his God. Where did he learn that? He learned that at home. He learned it at home. And so I'm really looking forward one day to getting to meet Daniel's mother and father. So the changing of names was something that was very, very common in biblical times. It was instituted to force a person to refer, forget their roots, to forget their heritage, and to forget their identity. Now, such was the case with Pharaoh when he renamed Joseph in Genesis chapter 41. 
Nebuchadnezzar was doing the same thing for the same reason. He wanted to remove their heritage and their identity and give them a whole new significance of who they were as a person. He wanted to change their identity. Let me walk you through the name changes so you'll understand this. The word Daniel, whose name means God has judged or God is my judge, was given the name Beltasajar, which means Beltis, B-E-L-T-I-S, who was the wife of the god Bel, B-E-L. Beltasajar means this. May the lady, wife of God Bel, protect the king. So he went from God has been my judge to now may Beltas protect the king to remove his sense of identity of his Christian heritage as a follower of the God of Israel. Hananiah, his name meant Yahweh has been gracious or the Lord is gracious. His name became Shadrach from the Arcadian verb for meaning I am fearful of a God. That's a deliberative pejorative variation of Marduk, M-A-R-D-U-K, who was the god of Babylon. It's a name derived from Aku, A-K-U, or Marduk, the chief Babylonian god. Do you see what he was doing? He's going to remove their heritage as from the god of Israel and now make their heritage the god of Babylon, redefining their identity. Mishael, his name is who is what God is was given the name Meshach from the Arcadian verb for meaning I am despised, I am contemptible or another translation could be I have become weak and humbled before my God Aku, A-K-U changing his identity, removing his name getting rid of his heritage as a follower of the God of Israel and now saying your new identity is you're a follower of the God Aku the God of Babylon Azariah, his name meant Yahweh has helped, or the Lord is my helper. His name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, N-E-B-O. Nego, N-E-G-O, was a Hebrew variation of the Babylonian name of the god Nebo, N-E-B-O. You can read about the god Nebo in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 1. Who was the son of Bel, who was the Babylonian god of writing and vegetation. He was also known as Nabu, N-A-B-U. Now, it's interesting. Nebuchadnezzar's name means Nabu has protected my inheritance. So it's rather obvious that the chief official of the court, Ashpenaz, was really determined to obliterate any reference to the God of Israel by giving them new names. Because he wanted to make sure of this, that as we change your identity, yes, we're going to re-educate you, we're going to reorient your lifestyle, but one thing we're going to do most importantly is we're going to redefine who you are. And that you now are under the subjection, authority, and obedience of all the Babylonian gods because we've changed your identity. You're no longer Daniel. You're no longer Mishael. You're no longer Azariah. You're now under the authority of these Babylonian gods because we have just changed your identity. So the real issue for us, my friends, is this. How do we respond to that situation? Thrown into a situation of a reorientation, a re-education, and a redefining of who you are? We're going to learn a lot from Daniel. Today was just to give you the historical background so you'd understand the applications we're going to make in future weeks. And the outline we're going to go through in the next three weeks will be this. 
We're going to look at the characteristics of a detectable lifestyle. Next week, we'll look at his uncompromising spirit and his unhindered sanctification. How and why did Daniel respond to what he did? That's the lesson for us, to be a detectable disciple. And then we'll look at the consequences. There are certain consequences of having a detectable lifestyle. And we'll see that in Daniel's life. We'll see that he had an unashamed boldness. We'll see that he had an unearthly protection. We'll see that he had an uncommon standard. We'll see that he had an unequaled wisdom. And lastly, you're going to see the unusual impact that Daniel had upon the world and even us today. Holy through your eyes. Holy through you. That God will make himself known that he is holy. When I demonstrate my holiness through you before their eyes. Dear beloved, we're going to learn a lot from Daniel about what it means to be a detectable disciple, a Christian in an unchristian world. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful Father, there's much that we can learn from this young lad. We thank you that you have preserved his life history for us, that we can glean insights about how we can be a detectable disciple, how to be a Christian in an unchristian world. Because in reality, Lord Jesus, the world hasn't changed that much from Nebuchadnezzar's day. The system of this world is out to re-educate us. The system of this world is out to reorient our lifestyle. And the system of this world is out to redefine who we are and to remove our biblical heritage with a godless, humanistic, atheistic, socialistic environment. May it be so, Father, that you'll be pleased to open our eyes that we might learn what it means to be like Daniel. Oh, to be like Daniel. May that be our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.